This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. On this episode of Undisciplined, we speak to John Comstock. John has worked previously as in-house counsel for Walmart and was appointed as a circuit court judge in 2011. Today, John works as part of the Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition. As our host, Dr. Corey Banton, likes to say, let's get into it. He is a former Benton Count judge who actually went to jail. Can you believe that? He went to jail because of his activism. Mr. Comstock has been employed in this profession for some time, but has recently come onto the activist side thinking more deeply about bail reform, something that is very much in the zeitgeist right now um, that we saw in this recent election cycle is being discussed um, as a part of the issues around criminal justice that we're seeing a lot of pushback um, on, on, on various fronts. He is on the board of the newly created Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition. He has attended bond hearings um, in the courtroom of um, Judge Chris Griffin. Um, he's talked to various sheriff offices about justice reform. So with that being said, we are certainly very happy to have Mr. Comstock today to fill us in on the court system and his activism with bail reform and his work with the Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition. Welcome to Undiscipline. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's nice to be here. Oh, wonderful. Can you tell us, are you a native Arkansian? No, I grew up in Oklahoma. I moved here in 1994. Oh, wow. So I've lived in Arkansas since 94. But I, I, I did legal work over here from 84 to 94, so I've been coming to Arkansas uh, to, to the Bentonville-Rogers area primarily since 1984. Are you one of those lawyers where people have to hire because down in Atoka and where we get those speeding tickets in those little small towns? No, no. <laughs> I mean, if you really want to know my background there, well, I was, I was in private practice in Oklahoma for 18 years. This is going to show my age here pretty soon. <laughs> But private practice for 18 years in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I moved here in 94, and I was actually an in-house attorney at Walmart for 18 years. Ah, okay. Twelve of those years, I did uh, uh, trial work for Walmart. I was in federal courts all across the country representing Walmart in commercial litigation. All during that time, I always did pro bono work. Uh, my whole legal career, I've done pro bono work of various kinds. And so I've stayed a little connected to the criminal justice system. But when, when I left Walmart, I got appointed to a judgeship, a, a Benton County Circuit Court judge, which is what they call a judge of general jurisdiction. They, they try all the big cases, civil and criminal. Um, and uh, I managed primarily the felony criminal docket. I was one of two judges in the county that did that. And then when that ended, when I left that bench, I, I basically started what's called a mediation practice. So I help people, and I still do this, help people resolve um, uh, lawsuits. And it could be any nature of lawsuit. Um, and then for about the last three years, I, I have really engaged in almost full-time pro bono work uh, where I, I, I represent folks that on any legal issue you can think of, it doesn't really have to be criminal justice, but the people come to me 
because of their interaction with the criminal justice system. And they come to me, they're forwarded to me or referenced to me by advocacy groups, by church groups, whatever. But when I get a client, they're usually not just standing alone knocking at my door saying they want me to represent them. They usually have been referred to me by somebody that I trust and somebody who knows this individual and is saying to me, John, this is a person who's been adversely impacted by criminal justice. They're trying to get their life straight. They need some help. And it, it could be trying to get custody back of their children or visitation with their children. It could be trying to get a, a, a criminal record sealed. It could be anything. My oldest brother is a practicing lawyer and has been for quite some time. And uh, he works almost exclusively with like insurance malpractice and those sorts of things. But he lives in a small town of about 1,800 people, one of the few lawyers who grew up there, stayed there. And I can imagine you can relate to this a little bit too, is that like anytime anyone he knows, even like vaguely knows of him, has any question about the law or needs any sort of expertise from a lawyer, he's their first phone call. He's their first Facebook message. <laughs> yes. Has this always been something for you? You didn't start, obviously you started in pretty, you know, like uh, pretty nice fancy suit and tie kind of law. Um, when for you did you start to notice that people trusted your expertise as a lawyer and came to you asking for help? Well, I, I gosh, I'm fortunate to be of this will sound almost arrogant, but I mean, I, I feel like most of my career, I have felt like people have reacted to me that way. Um, I don't pat myself on the back. I do tell people that I genuinely care and I do care about individuals. One of the things that gets me about pretrial detention that 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 bothers me so much is, and and maybe we can delve into it just a little bit about my own experience in in the Benton County Jail, but I, it pains me. It pains me sitting here right now talking to you to think about the fact that in our two respective jails in these two adjoining counties, mm -hmm. there are five, six, seven, eight hundred people that are in jail that are pretrial detainees. That means they've been charged with a crime, but they've not been found guilty, and and they have a presumption of innocence. But the reason they're in jail still for days, weeks, and months is because they cannot afford the, the cost of the bond. It's not the crime that they're charged with. Attorneys will use it right now in, in our adjoining counties. Attorneys will say, hey, I've got to go to the cattle call today. And what that is, is you go to the felony courtroom and the courtroom is packed with individuals charged with crimes who are out on bond. They posted bond. They're free. Uh, their attorneys are there. Uh, they might have family members that are supporting them that are there. There might be some witnesses that are also in the courtroom as well. And then let's say there's over 150 people that are told to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning. They all show up at the same time, and then what happens? The judge calls case number one. You don't know who case number one is until they call case number one. They state the defendant's name. And then they'll usually what happens is 85% of the time, those cases are going to be passed to a new date. But the lawyer and the client have to walk up, stand in front of the judge, talk about the fact that they still don't have this case worked out, and then the judge says, okay, I'll see you back in 30 days on this date, and if you're not here, a warrant will be issued for your arrest. Case number two. And then they just do that, and that's why they call it a cattle call, because lawyers just stand there, and clients who have taken off work every time this happens, if they have a job, they have to just stand there. And I always tell people, 
think about uh, any profession, any, any occupation that we have. What if our doctors had 50 people show up at the same time for a doctor's appointment? We wouldn't tolerate that. Right. Why do we tolerate it in our court system? It's because we have no respect for the individuals involved. We, 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 our, our system presumes they're guilty and not only presumes they're guilty, but presumes that they're less than worthy. Uh, you know, because otherwise we wouldn't treat them that way. If we treated them like fellow human beings, we would say, you can't order 100 people to show up at the same time and then just make them stand in line. You'd have like to a bunch their of, time. Like a bunch of cattle. Yeah. Like their time has no value. The people making all the money in the courtroom, uh, you know, the, the lawyers even are getting paid more because because the case takes more time, so they're charging more Every eight minutes, time. baby. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I used to charge, when I did billable work, I would charge, if you did court by the quarter hour, that was... That, that's too a generous. big time slot. Yeah, I, I used generous. to did, did six minute increments. Ah. I would even charge six minute increments when I was doing billable hour work. Yeah. But no, it's just, and I and I'll I'll, I'll I'll make this observation to you if you if depending on where you want to go with the questions in our conversation today. But if you want to know what's wrong with our criminal justice system, listen, it's from beginning to end. There's not anything that doesn't need radical change. There, the, every aspect of it, I could share with you. We could just talk and talk and talk about what's wrong with the way we do things currently. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry that that's the state of affairs that we're in, but it is where, it is, where we are. Is that, a, is that a product of nothing has changed since yes. the beginning of time, of the beginning exactly. of America? Like Listen to this. 1700s? <laughs> when, when, when I first left Walmart, I was an in-house attorney. When I left and, and got appointed by the governor for this for this judgeship because a judge had retired early. So I was just going to fulfill a limited role, less than two years. A lot of the attorneys in town didn't know me uh, in, in Northwest Arkansas. Yeah. They didn't, and they're thinking, how is this corporate lawyer going to step into a felony judge role? How do you even get this position? And how is he going to do it? And what I tell folks is, you know how I did it? Because I worked for felony judges when I went to law school, if I could say back in 1970 two to 75. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I went worked for, for felony judges in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we're doing things today the same way we did them then. Mm. Nothing has changed. This system is stuck in the past. We did cattle calls then, and they called them cattle calls. They still call them cattle calls. And bonds are set. A judge, when somebody gets arrested, charged with a crime, particularly a felony, there's almost an automatic bond amount set. Now, if you go look at any rule, if you look at any publication that the Supreme Court of Arkansas or any of our courts will publish, you'll ask yourself, how do they get that dollar amount? Guess what? You will find zero guidance. And it's not just in Arkansas. It's across the country this way. How do they do it? I'll tell you how they do it. It's whatever that judge has gotten used to. In, in this county, if I'm the judge, maybe I've gotten into the habit on burglary second degree, I set a $10,000 bond. Well, guess what? If that's what you're charged with, that's what your bond is going to be in my court. You go to Sebastian County, and a judge there might, for whatever reason, his experience is, he sets a $2,000 bond on burglary in the second degree. For the exact same crime. Exact same crime. It makes no difference. It leaves a lot of subjectivity. 100% subjectivity and, and, and what we in the legal profession would call arbitrary discretion. That, that's what's so offensive about the whole system. And, and we, have, we have directions from our Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, that have told us that, that financial ability to pay should be a consideration as it relates to bond setting. But none of our judges uh, consider that. When I say none of them, I mean I, I don't want to say on any given day that they never consider it, 
but it's almost never considered the ability to pay. No, it's a rote system that just says you're charged with this crime. I typically set this bond. And how did I get to that number? A lot of times it's because that's what the prosecutor asked for and the judges sign, you know, what the prosecutor asked for. We're not on camera, but I can still maybe develop the visual for you. But when I was a judge and I would see my courtroom be filled with people that were on bond, and then I would see this one, two or three rows of the courtroom filled with people that are shackled. And in our counties, when we shackle people, if they're shackled around the wrist, around their, their waist, then there's a chain that connects the, the wrist to the waist, and then there's chains around the, the uh, ankles and chains that connect down to there. So when they, people come in front of me, they literally would hobble as they walk up. And here's the reality. I asked my clerks to look and help me compare the people on bond. What's the difference between those people and the people shackled up? You might think it's the crime charged. No, it's not the crime charged at all. And it's not that way across the whole country. It's, it's the financial ability to pay because People that commit violent crimes get out on bond every day if yes. they have the money to pay. Right. So what, what the reality of it is, and I always like to reach into my back pocket and, and pull out. I don't have a $100 bill to pull out, but if I did, I'd say, you know what? If that guy could reach into his back pocket, peel out two or three $100 bills, you know what would happen? All of a sudden, the judge would say, deputy, take the shackles off of that man. Right. He's no longer a threat to us. And, and that's what our justice system is, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but everybody cries about the fact where we say that money makes such a difference in our legal system, but it makes such a difference right at that point as to whether or not you get pretrial freedom or not. If you're poor, you're not going to get it. If you got money in the bank, you're going to get pretrial release. What is the reason someone could argue for the use of bail, bail money? Okay. Why Why? Why is this something that we have in our justice system in America? And why would someone say having someone having to pay for bail is, is, a good thing. is worth it? Yes. Well, keep in mind, the, 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 the rationale behind bail is we want people, we want to achieve two things. When somebody is charged with a crime, they get booked into the county jail, fingerprinted, photographed. And then one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to post their bail and get released and then they'll finally come back to court when their case is going to be disposed of, or they stay in jail until their case is disposed of, which could be days, weeks, or months. Well, the ones that get out, we ask them to post a cash bail. The theory is that will induce them, incentivize them to come back to court. Because you get back some of that money, right? You don't get back a dime of it. See, that's the, that, that's the <laughs> odd thing. Studies have actually shown that the dollar amount of your bail has nothing to do with whether you and I will come back to court. You know what controls whether you and I will come back to court? It's who we are. If we're charged with a crime and we've been arrested, we've been charged, and the court system is telling us you've got to be back on this date and time, well, who are you as a person and an individual in the state that you live in, most people come back to court when they're charged with a felony. Sure. You know, the truth of it is very few people abscond. And by absconding, I mean run away and, 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 and leave the state or even the country. That's, that's, that's like movie script uh, happenings, okay? Yeah. These people are too poor to even leave the house that they live in. They're still at that same house where they got arrested originally. They're still going to the same job they had if they don't show up in court. It's not that they've absconded, but the theory is, is they will be incentivized to come back to court. Studies, national studies have shown there is no correlation. You and I pay $300 or $500 to get out on bail, on jail, 
because that's what the system requires us to do to get our freedom. So you and I are going to come up with whatever money we can. And it has nothing to do with whether we're going to come to court. That that Because like I say, you don't get the money back. Let's say your bond is, uh, is $1,000, which is almost unheard of for a felony, okay? It's usually a lot more. But if it's $1,000, normally what happens is you go to a bail bonding company. It's like an insurance company. But you buy like an insurance policy from them and you give them 10% of the bond. So you give them $100. Right. And then you have to sign a contract and you have to a lot of times pledge property like your house, your car, whatever, your first child, you know, whatever it is they want. <laughs> collateral. Some collateral. Exactly. And you, you, you pledge all of that. But let's say the case finally gets disposed of and gets dismissed. You do not get that 10% back. That, I thought that, if you did not show up to court, then you well, you, well, if you, don't you forfeit get, that ten percent. Yes, if you don't show up to court, um, uh, well, actually, if you don't show up to court, potentially, the bail bonding company is on the hook to the court for the thousand dollars, and then they will recoup it from you for the full thousand because they've been out of pocket at that point. But let me tell you both, that almost never ever happens. Uh, bail bonding companies are almost never held accountable for whether somebody does or does not show up. But let's say the best case scenario for you is your case gets dismissed. After you've, after you've been out on bond for six months, the prosecutor announces to the judge, Your Honor, we've concluded that there's not enough evidence to prosecute. We're dismissing the case. And the judge will say, Ma'am or sir, you're, you're free to go. And you might say, Well, hey, what about that 10% I paid on my bond? Do I get that back? No, you don't. What about the fact that I've lost my job because I was held in jail for 10 days before I finally bonded out? Sorry about that. What about the fact that I fell behind on my child support? Now I'm in court being sued for contempt. What about the fact that, you know, my, my, my wife and I were, were already a month behind on our rent. Now we've been evicted. Can the court help me get my status back with my landlord? Sorry about that. I mean, everything falls on the shoulders of people who were already marginalized uh, and uh, victimized. And, and our system does nothing to right the wrong for those folks when a case is dismissed. So the ability to pay then rewards people of a higher social status. Who Absolutely. has that kind of money, whereas those of a lower social status who cannot afford to pay then the criminal justice system or the prison system kind of takes their body. Absolutely. And, and, and the reason, and can I refer to these two sales tax issues that we just had? Sure, of course. Well, the, in, in Benton and Washington County, where you and I live, both of these counties were trying to pass sales taxes to expand, greatly expand their jails. And the citizens yesterday turned them both down. But, but when you think about it, what they wanted to do was they want, in Benton County, they wanted to add like 1,200 beds to the, to the jail. And they wanted to expand the jail. Expand the jail and, and, and build 1,200 new jail beds. And in Washington County, they wanted maybe anywhere from eight to 1,500. They were never totally clear on how many beds they wanted, 800 to 1,500. But here's the thing. The Constitution says it's, it's not right to hold you in custody just because of your poverty. So judges should consider the ability to pay. But what I'm telling you is they don't. Nobody looks at that question. Almost nobody does. If you can believe it, and you may know this, but across the nation, bail reform is a big issue. And guess what? They've shown that, yes, do some people not show up for court? That's correct. Some people don't. But it's not correlated to whether you have bail or not. Everybody thought it was for a long time, and that's why people got into this habit. But listen to this rule. Well, first I will say, in all this criminal justice bail reform going on in the nation, 
the people that are wanting to reform their court rules or their laws or their statutes, they're actually trying to get language like we have already existing in Arkansas. This is the freaky thing about this. Listen to what I'm going to read to you. This is the stellar language that people want in their reform efforts. We have it. Listen, Rule 9.2 of the Arkansas Rules of Criminal Procedure. The judicial officer shall set, shall set money bail only after he determines that no other conditions will reasonably ensure the appearance of the defendant in court. This rule is saying you can't just set a money bond just because somebody shows up in front of you charged with burglary in the second degree. Okay, your bond's $10,000, your court date exists, see you later. No, you have to talk to that individual, get to know that individual, learn about that individual, ask enough questions where you could say, well, what are some conditions that I could impose that might assure this person would show up in court? For instance, is there a family member in the court that's, that's here uh, 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 that would stand up for you? Well, yes, Your Honor, my mother's in the back of the courtroom. Ma'am, would you stand up? And, and I live with my mom. Ma'am, would you stand up, the judge could say. Now, will you, are you willing to have your son still live with you while this matter is proceeding? Yes, I am, Your Honor. And, and if your son, if I order your son to spend every night at your home rather than someplace else, are you acceptable to that? Yes. And, 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 and will you accept the responsibility of reporting to the court if he does not spend the night at your home? Yes, Your Honor, I will. Well, I'll tell you what, ma'am, and, and, and let's say I've also asked some questions the judge did to learn that she's lived in this town for, you know, 20 years or whatever. He went to school here. He's graduated from the local schools. I'm not going to reduce your bond. I'm going to eliminate your bond, and I'm just going to release you on what's called own recognizance. You just sign a document that you promise to appear, just like you do when you get a traffic citation, uh, and the officer asks you to sign something. They always tell you, you're not signing that you're guilty. You're just signing you promise to go to court. We can do that on felonies. We can do that on any charge, uh, what they call own recognizance. And the judge has set some conditions. But what happens now is we just, as a matter of fact and habit, we set that bond right out of the gate and they don't take the time. And I confronted one of our judges, one of our circuit judges about this. And she said to me, well, John, what you're asking for is an individual, individualized case consideration. And I said, yeah, that's what the Constitution requires. And she said, well, that would take too much time. And, and, and that's why they resist it. They don't want, because as you can see, by interviewing the defendant and learning about the defendant's contacts with the community and things like that, it takes a little bit of time. And this cattle call doesn't have time because everybody's ordered to show up at 8 a.m. And so they run them through one after another after another. And I'm, I, I still feel shameful about it because when I was a circuit judge, I conducted those same cattle calls. But the only thing I will say in my defense is, I called the prosecutor in and the public defender and chief public defender and said, this seems crazy to me. Can we not come up with a better system of having these people come to court? Because I'm willing to do, make some changes. And they both told me, John, you're a temporary judge. You're, you're, you're only here filling rock a spot. So please don't rock the boat. We're comfortable with it the way it works. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. What I learned after the fact was, as judge, I really could have done a lot more in that even in those few months, I just I didn't um, I didn't have the experience that I have today knowing yeah. just just what I could have done. Is there an argument to be made that due process isn't being done appropriately? If this is being done so rapidly, 
that I, I think I think when a lot of people hear due process, they think a speedy and a speedy trial, right? But due process really means I'm doing my work to make sure I'm doing this case the best that I can, and even if that takes a minute and a half longer for every case, absolutely, that's these, a part these, of due these process. These are due process. Fi- oh, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, isn't that what the big issue is? That the court is unable to hear all of those cases. The court is unwilling to. But how can they hear all of those cases that come before the court? Because uh, Listen, the, we learned during this whole campaign of resisting the jails, at least in Benton County, a lot of times our judges aren't even conducting court. They're not even there on Fridays. They take Fridays off. That's ridiculous. If you're a judge and you've got full dockets, they should be conducting court every day. And they can stagger these appearances. Yes, they don't have time to do it when they have 100 people show up at 8 a.m. But you could stagger people's appointments with the court like, like a doctor does yeah. anyplace else. Arkansas is really ripe for litigation. It's just a matter of the right lawyers who, who have the right skill sets who are willing to take on the issue. Because our judges and, and our court system is in violation of the Constitution daily, consistently. Can I tell you why pretrial release is so important? Because you, you might think, well, is it just all about the person doesn't want to be in jail and they're too poor to post bonds? So, you know, it's, I'm sorry, but that's what happens when you're poor. It's more important than that. You're familiar with the term mass incarceration. Well, this pretrial detention feeds mass incarceration. And let me tell you how it does. If two people are charged with burglary, one posts bond on day one. And then one stays in jail and their case gets disposed of nine months later. Here's, here's what data shows. The person who stayed in jail that nine months is four times greater likelihood of being sentenced to actual time in jail. They're three times more likely to have a longer jail sentence than the person who posted bond. They're three times more likely to be sentenced to time in prison and for that time in prison to be greater in length of time, well, okay, they're two times more likely to have a longer prison sentence. So what I'm telling you is the outcomes for that individual who doesn't post bond are horrendous, and they feed this, this, uh, this, this uh, pipeline of mass incarceration. Now, Judge, a question about that, because yes. I'm wondering if the condition is being met before right, that it's the fact that those who can afford to pay the bond and not be incarcerated pretrial means that they can afford really good lawyers and therefore argue their cases and get off, whereas those people who are actually incarcerated pretrial cannot. The reason why they're there, they cannot afford um, lawyers. So yes. if they're going to be using um, you public, know, defenders. public defenders who are overworked and underpaid, yeah. Let me, who don't know them or know their cases very well, probably have a million cases, yeah. um, it means that you're just doing this to poor people. Yes. It, well, yeah, I, I will say it is poor people that are being victimized, and that's why the defeat of these two jails expansions were so critically important because that would have altered the dynamic of criminal justice in these two counties to, to just be that much more oppressive against poor people. But it's I, I will say, I'll, I'll back off just a little bit of the distinction between the public defender and the private lawyer. Yes, certainly the, the one who can post the bond and can afford the private lawyer, they're at an advantage, no doubt about it. 
But what really gives the advantage, it's not so much that the private lawyer gets the person off the case. That can happen. You can, you can actually win the case outright. But that's not normally what happens. What normally happens is it's the question of what is the plea bargain that results in the case? Because right. let's say you've got the, the, the burglary suspect and, and you've got a good case against him and they're going to plead guilty to something. So what's the negotiated plea? Well, let's say it carries 10 years in prison. Okay, as a maximum in two years, two to 10 years, let's say it carries in prison. Well, if your person has been out on bond, they've been going to work every day or they've been going to school every day. They can show a judge a certificate. They can show a judge some award that they got from their employer. This they, is a contributing member of society. A contributing they member need of to be society. back in society. And so when that lawyer, that defense lawyer, whether it's private or public defender, that lawyer has all kinds of goodness to share to with the prosecutor, you. and they can negotiate a better plea. When, when your person shows up on day one in shackles, and on the day you're finally, finally trying to dispose of the case, is still in shackles, it, there's an assumption of guilt, and there's this sense that you must be like this phrase, and I hate to say it, I'm going to say it because this is the attitude, a low life. You know, you are a low life. You you haven't been providing for your family. You haven't been providing rent. You haven't been paying your child support. You have not been a contributing member to society. You're not paying your taxes. In fact, we're paying for your room and board in the jail, and we're paying all your medical expenses. You know, so that defense attorney, regardless of whether it's a private lawyer or a public defender, they're at a great disadvantage when they try to negotiate. So that person on burglary second, he gets an offer five years in prison. Whereas the other person got an offer, two years probation, yeah. no prison. It's, it's those kinds of distinctions that are being made. We'll be right back. You're listening to a podcast produced by KUAF, your public radio station for more than three decades. Hello, I'm Timothy Dennis. KUAF's on-air programming features the latest news from NPR, with shows like All Things Considered, 1A, and Here and Now, locally hosted music programs on the weekend that you won't find online, local newscasts every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30, updates on events happening throughout the KUAF listening area, and more. To listen, tune your radio to 91.3 FM, visit our website, KUAF.com, or tell your smart speaker to play KUAF. It sounds to me like this is a systemic issue that could be addressed at the level of judges. Is that fair to say? It is very fair to say. Judges and prosecutors, but judges judges could... Judges could, have a lot of discretion. They have a they lot could. of ability to set precedent in their courtrooms. They have the ability to really make a change. What is stopping that from happening? You know what? For whatever reason, it's, it's the lack of will and it's fear. People are afraid. Like you asked the question, what is the reason for having the bond to begin with? Judges are afraid... To make decisions because, well, if I reduce this bond and the person gets out and the person does something bad, then everybody's going to point it, the finger at me. It hurts their reputation. Yes. But what I tried to always say, well, they, the people would say, well, John, why weren't you afraid of that? Something could happen. In fact, something did. Listen to this. I reduced a bond for an individual who was charged with robbing a bank or attempted robbery with a toy gun. Okay. It turns out this individual had mental health problems, but I reduced his bond when he got out on bond. He went back out and, and tried to rob another bank with a toy gun. 
Now, when he appeared in front of me the next time, I told him, I said, you understand why I'm not going to reduce your bond this time? <laughs> and he said, yes, I do, Your Honor. He didn't even ask for a sure. bond, redu- bond reduction. But I forgot. Tell me the point you just made. I, I think well, I'm... the idea, right, that the judges have a lot of authority. They have a lot of discretion in these scenarios. And why don't but we're not it? seeing this, right? Yes. You know, is it just a, well, this is the way it's always been done? Is it a... Well, let, uh, let, me, let me say this. One, one way that you could get some insight is if you went into the courtroom and watched the way these judges, and I say these judges, and I don't mean every single judge, and I certainly don't mean every occasion, but on balance, you, would, you could form some opinions about that by watching the way they interact with the defendants. Uh, how do they treat them? There is such a thing as being courteous, Almost to a fault where it's kind of a false courtesy. Yeah. You know, as I send you off to prison, yeah. you know, I shake my hand, wish you well, wish you the best, you know. Um, That's or, almost or, infantilizing. Yeah. Or as I turn yeah. down your, your bond request. No, I think it's, um, it's people are used to doing things the way they've done it. I think there is a certain sense of power that comes from being able to control the fate of other people. Yeah. Um, and if we just... You know, they, if you use the phrase, let's just start letting these people out, well, that doesn't make it sound like I'm very powerful. And so uh, I remember one time when the prosecutors got mad at me because a defendant said, Your Honor, the prosecutor told me he decides whether I get out of jail. And I believe that was a message that the prosecutor was given because a lot of judges will, will do what the prosecutor wants. Right. But uh, I said, well, actually, the prosecutor makes a recommendation. It is the judge who sets the bond. Yeah. That's why I don't actually fault the sheriff's for holding these people, the sheriffs are holding somebody because the judge That's said what they've been told to do. <laughs> exactly. It is the judge that, that has got to, uh, to do something different. You know, we, you asked the question early on about whether you get any part of the bond back. Right. Part of the bond reform efforts across the nation have involved something called bail project or bail fund, community bail funds. We're going to try to develop one in Washington and Benton County. We've had the presence of what is called the National Bell Project here. And in that one, what happens, but they have limited money, and so you can only help limited number of people. But let's say the bond is $1,000. Rather than coming up with the 10% for the bail bondsman, they come up with a full $1,000, and they get that person out of jail. And then if that person comes to court like they should, when court is finally finished, that bail project gets that full $1,000 back, the court doesn't hold any of it back, and then you can recycle that money for Another more people. Person. Uh, 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 yes, and so we are. We've had some of the, a project here for the last couple of years called the Bail Project, a national group, and we're now in the process of kind of handing off to us. And we're going to be trying now that this election's over with. We're going to be trying to develop a community bail fund that would do the same thing. Only, only obviously, it, how many people we could help will depend on how much money we can raise. This is also very fascinating, bail reform, the plea bargaining system. I guess I watch a lot of gangster movies. Uh, so, you know, you know, hearing all, you know, and rappers have to plea out, they got to plea out. And, and, you know, it was very surprising to me that, you know, when I looked into the history of this, where people were like, plea bargains were almost unheard of prior to the Civil War. Right. And it's only after that, um, after the Civil War, where we're seeing a lot of Americans, especially immigrants, coming into cities and the crime rates are increasing. 
where you see appellate courts start um, this practice of plea bargaining, right? So the plea bargaining system then became this kind of a release valve because of the mounting caseloads, right? And because appellate courts, you know, kind of, you know, saw it as a way to not having to hear all of those kinds of cases, right? Even though people were seeing it as a shocking thing because of what constitutionally your rights um, should guarantee you. But, you know, apparently 97% of all federal cases are settled this way. By plea bargain. And, and at state At state level, it's the same thing. Let me assure you, you, you might read in the paper about a jury trial that's taken place, but when that with that one jury trial, there were hundreds or thousands of cases the that were disposed of without a jury trial. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you ask for a jury trial, if you tell the prosecutor you want a jury trial, then the plea bargain that they offer for you has just gotten worse. Yes. So they make the conditions where so you want Absolutely. you're going to spend 50 years in jail or you're going to go to trial. Exactly. And people get afraid. That's how Absolutely. so many black people end up in jail because when you see the, the that your you, odds are, are if you get in a fair trial, right. you're going to take the plea deal. You're right. going to cop to the plea deal. Right. You know, even and if so, you know you didn't even do if it. You're not, that's how I mean, look at you know, the Central Park Five and all of yeah. those, you know, like you're confessing to things that you, you didn't, didn't do, do because in the face of this massive system that you feel so powerless against, yes. you're going to be like, maybe I did it. Well, and, and, it, <laughs> and it may even I mean, I, I wonder if it even goes back to this idea of of lynchings, right? This idea that so many of the lynchings that happened in the Red Summer were were people being accused of things that they didn't do and even when they tried to tell people they didn't do it it just made matters worse and so there's probably this like subconscious just like man if all these people think i did it maybe maybe i I did did it it. oh seriously and and the reality of it is whether you did it or not doesn't really matter in this in this process that's what's so unfortunate (laughs) we say that trials are a search for the truth but we don't conduct trials anymore we negotiate your 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 life away and 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 here's the thing you were talking about uh, well let's say the lynchings whatever one of the things you mentioned the term uh, Matthew a minute ago about something being a systemic issue yeah, yeah. We, we have a systemic issue as it relates to race in our criminal oh, justice absolutely. system. absolutely. Now, certainly as it relates to class as well. Mm-hmm. But as race, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in t- August of 2015, the School of Law at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock released a report called Reveal, Restore, and Resurrect, the truth about racial disparities in the Arkansas criminal justice system. And, and they did a – this is the only study that I know of that tried to take a real in-depth look at uh, – at, at serious crime in, in Arkansas and to see what were the disparities if they were present as it related to race. And guess what? They were present at all phases from the from the time of arrest, from the decision as to what charge to charge the person with, as to what punishments to ask for, as to whether to ask for the death penalty or not, or to or to waive the death penalty. From A to Z, being a member of a minority, particularly African-American, was disadvantageous to the defendant. It's hard for people in the system to face because people, you know, they think, well, hold it. Are you calling me a racist? I'm not a racist. You know, they use this, this term. I'm, I'm colorblind. Yeah. And as we all know now, that's, that's, a, that's an absurd thing to say that, that you're colorblind because um, – Dr. Banton, I, I I look at you and I definitely see that you are, Af- well, I won't say African-American, you're black right? compared to my skin. Right. Matthew, you're white compared That's to true. my skin. I'm white as well. 
But we're not colorblind. We do see color, and our brains do something with that, yeah. whether we intend for it to or not. You know how long I was in jail? In, in just my little Tell us experience? about your little jail experience. Well, well, you, okay. you are here like a bandolero, Mr. Comstock. <laughs> have, have you got time for me just to give you a little bit of snippet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, bottom line is, because I'm opposed to this jail expansion, uh, one of the one of the misdemeanor judges in the county it was very much in support of the expansion. And he and I have, have testified publicly in front of the county governing board several times. And he's been pretty vehement uh, in support of the jail, saying, I need the jail space to put misdemeanor offenders in jail. And uh, so, and, and at one point I said, well, there needs to be attorneys appointed at this bond hearing because this judge conducts bond hearings. He said, no, we don't need attorneys. I conduct a very efficient thing. And if you don't believe me, you can come and watch my watch me conduct court anytime you want to. Well, I decided to go watch him conduct court. So when I get there, First of all, the courtroom, the building is locked. I can't even get in the building where court is being held. That's not right. It's a public, public has to have access to the court. So I called. They finally let me in, unlocked the doors and let me in. But then they put me into the courtroom, but there's a glass wall. There's speakers on the wall, but they don't work. So I stand up and I holler at the judge. I knew this judge. I'm not a stranger to him. He knows me as a former circuit judge. You know, he's a fellow judge of, of mine. And, uh, I just say, Judge, uh, the speakers aren't working. I can't hear you. And he screams back at me, that's not my problem. Sit down. So then I do sit down. And for the next hour, I sit in silence while he conducts court with about 10 or 12 defendants. When they were finished, I was getting ready to leave because court was over with. The deputy sheriff opens the door then, which they could have opened all along and let me listen, but they didn't. But now they open the door and says the judge wants to talk to you. So I, I say, okay. So I walk in there. Well, the judge and I start talking. He's irritated with me for being there. I'm irritated with him because he's saying that he's not responsible for the sound system. I said, judge, but it's your courtroom and you're conducting court, and I'm supposed to be able to hear what's going on. All I know is out of that exchange, within just a minute or two, which, by the way, it's all on videotape out on the what we call the World, World Wide, Wide Web. Web. <laughs> it's out there somewhere. People have told me they've watched it. So you can see the, this entire thing. But anyway, all of a sudden he screams, that's it. You're in contempt of court. Take him into custody. And these two deputies jumped me like you would have thought that I had pulled a gun in open court. Uh, and they, the, and, and I, I will say I am not going easily. I am, I am pushing back. You arrest, Mr. Comstock? I, I, I don't want to make that confession on the air <laughs> just because a statute of limitations might not have run. <laughs> but when we got back behind the door, I will tell you in the in the sheriff's uh, area, the jail area, the two deputies apologized to me for being so so rough on me. I told them, "Hey, uh, listen, I I don't I'm I'm not upset with you. I could tell that you were just kind of feeding off of the the mood and the intensity of yeah. the of the anger of the judge. So I mean, w- we're fine. But I will tell you, ten minutes later, they had me in a cell, stripped naked, and handed me jail clothes to put on." And then set me down on a, on a plastic chair outside a solitary cell. And a few minutes later, they put me in a solitary cell. Now, when I was sentenced, I was sentenced to five days. That's what he announced from the bench. Contempt of court, five days in jail. After two hours, they came and unlocked the cell and told me that the judge had, sus- they had, the judge had sent over a written order and had suspended four and a half days. And I was only going to serve a half a day, which I, I got booked in at 730 that morning. They said I'd get booked out at 730 that night. 
I will tell you that this this is a I've never felt this in my life. Even though I feel empathy for people that are in custody, I've never been there where 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 I was actually the doors were locked behind me. I thought I was going to have an anxiety attack. I had to kind of talk myself out of that so that I didn't have an anxiety attack. I didn't even really know what an anxiety attack was, but I felt one coming on. And I thought, my gosh, John, you have no control. You have to do what these people say because they're in total control of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I will just say that even after I was told two hours later into this thing that I was going to get out 10 hours later, that next 10 hours was, you might think, well, why wouldn't you just kick back and be relaxed? You know you're getting out at 730 that night. But it wasn't relaxing. I was in a solitary cell, a concrete block cell with a steel door with a very small window, and I was anxious the entire time. It pains me to think about the number of people that are literally cut off from their kids, cut off from their spouses, cut off from their friends and relatives, whatever, because why? Because they're poor. And it's, it, it, it sickens me, and it's not right. Uh, and why I'm so proud of the citizens that turned down these two tax proposals is because And I said on my different radio interviews, we always say, you know, we don't like it that our criminal justice system rewards people with money and and, and is offensive to poor people. But I said, man, if you believe that, then vote no on these jail increases, because all they're going to do is victimize that many more poor people. This will put a limit, at least, on how many they can put in jail at one time. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Comstock, for coming on on Discipline. We certainly enjoyed this conversation with you today, and we're grateful for having spent this time. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and, and I appreciate the opportunity. Undisciplined is hosted by me, Karee Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.